Good morning. It's great to be in worship with you. Hope you're having a wonderful Advent season thus far. In our sermon series, we're looking at different places in the gospel, different places uh, where the gospel story, where Christmas takes place. We've been looking at different cities so far. This morning, we're going to look at Nazareth, looking at Luke 1, 26 through 33. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, in this time of Advent, we celebrate the fact that you have come into our world, that you did not leave us alone, that you did not leave us to our own uh, agendas, to our sin, to make a total mess of our lives, but you entered into our story and you offer to bring us peace, to bring rest in the midst of our chaos. Father, I pray as we celebrate Advent this season that we would remember the rest that is present in Jesus his salvation that he brings, the fact that you bring your magnificent gift of love, of mercy, of grace through insignificant things like a baby in a manger. Father, I pray that we would worship as we listen, as we learn, as we worship together. I pray that you would give us hearts that praise you, give us hearts that are drawn to you, that are drawn into this story. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. In the hobbit hole there is comfort. In the shire there is a predictable ease of life. There's a predictability, reliability that things are going to go pretty much the same tomorrow as they went yesterday. But then Gandalf pays a visit with tales of adventure. The hobbits would listen, but they wouldn't want to go out with them because hobbits don't have any room in their lives for adventure. It might make them miss dinner. But Bilbo, as you know, consents, and he's taken up into an adventure with Gandalf, and his tidy little comfortable world is turned upside down, and he's all of a sudden sleeping on the ground, fighting for his life, fighting spiders and such. In the Bible, the people that God uses are almost always misfits. They're sinners. They're people with horrible blind spots that you could drive a truck through. And it's meant to be tremendously encouraging as we read through this over and over, the type of person that God uses as a sinner, a misfit. And we see that no one is too far gone. No one can claim to be out of God's concern, out of the reach of His grace. 
But then we meet someone like Mary, someone very, very normal. She's not old enough to have done anything really all that horrible. She's small and weak and very, very common. It's likely she's never been out of her little town of Nazareth. And suddenly, an angel shows up and wants to take her on an adventure. You see, God takes misfits and makes them fit by his mercy. But he also takes normal people and unfits their normalness. He turns their comfortable, predictable, tidy little worlds upside down. He untidies them. He throws them into a world of helplessness, of neediness, of messiness, of vulnerability, and also of excitement and adventure. As we look at this place of Christmas, Nazareth, we're going to see both the grand scope of what God is doing through this little baby, through Mary. We're going to see the magnificent plan that he has, not only for his people, but for all creation. But then also we're going to see the smallness the way that he values the insignificant, the way he uses the most insignificant-seeming things to accomplish his mission. Let's look at these, largeness and smallness. Mary is a very, very young girl. She's of marriable age, so she's probably around 12. Can you imagine that? This little girl, ready to be married, in those days, uh, it was very, very important to remain a virgin until you were married. If, if you weren't, then you may not be married. And so fathers parents would make sure they married their daughters off very close to puberty. They didn't want to take a chance that something might happen. It's very important to the daughter, uh, to the family. And so she was probably 12, maybe 13, maybe even 11. Mary's life seems to be falling into place. For women in that day, one of the most critical pieces of their role, their place in society, was their marriage. Their marriage to a good man, and Joseph was certainly that. She's betrothed to Joseph, which is very dissimilar to our engagement, because it can only be broken off by divorce or by death. But during betrothal, you still live in the household of your father. And so you have very little contact with your fiancé, but you're betrothed. It's almost like marriage. But you live a very safe, a very sheltered life. She's very young. Her world is starting to make sense. She has a plan for life, a clear future, security that is found in Joseph. And then an angel shows up. Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, steps into Mary's story. When Gandalf shows up in the Shire, there's a celebration, there's fireworks, there's a party. But there's also an uneasiness among the hobbits because he tells stories of adventure that happen outside of the Shire. And they may get caught up in one of these stories and be drawn off to follow Gandalf into some adventure, some battle. When the angel of God shows up, there's reason to celebrate. God is speaking. God is showing up in someone's story. But there's always, as well, an uneasiness. It's a terrifying event, especially for someone of Mary's age. It's terrifying because life will never be the same again. Greetings, you who are highly favored, the angel says. The Lord is with you. Do not be afraid. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. 
Of course, in those days, names meant so much more than they do today. The choice of a name was very, very significant. But Jesus is sort of a common name. It means God is salvation, or salvation comes from God, Yeshua. And he says, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Israel, of Jacob, forever. His kingdom will never end. What Gabriel is laying on this little girl is, frankly, astounding. The ruler of Israel would be born to this little one. Her child will sit on David's throne, even though David's throne had been dead and gone for a thousand years. Mary would know, as a Jew, she would know of the ancient promises that one day a Messiah king would renew David's throne and not only sit in a geopolitical sense, not only reign over the physical house of Israel, but reign over the whole world over spiritual Israel, over all of God's people. And it would be an everlasting reign. Mary, this terrified little girl, is going to have a central role to play in that story, in that grand, magnificent, large story. But then, even more astounding, God's son, Mary, will be your son. God will take on flesh. He will be human And this little girl, 12-year-old, will be the mother of Jesus. The whole thing is so unbelievable. Now, if we read chapter 1, we would see an event, an an account that was very similar to this. You can almost read them in parallel, but there's very similar things and there's also a few contrasts. The angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, the priest, in the temple in Jerusalem announcing the birth of John the Baptist, the one who will pave the way for Jesus, the forerunner. Now, Zechariah is married to Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, but they're much, much older. They're beyond childbearing age. And so the proclamation that they will have a son is preposterous for a whole different reason than it is with Mary. Zechariah is a priest, a holy man, a learned man, and yet he's dubious. He's skeptical that this could really take place. He hesitates when the angel comes. He's far too old. But beyond that, God just didn't pop into people's lives like this. It wasn't normal for an angel to show up. Do you remember if you're older than 30, when the TV stations would go off air for the day? If you're under 30, just nod your head politely and act like you recognize what I'm talking about. But in the old days, there was only a few channels, and they would only broadcast till midnight, maybe one o'clock at night. And then they would say, this concludes our broadcast day. And then they'd play the star-spangled banner, they'd show scenes from the space program and whatnot. And then the rainbow screen would come on, and you'd get either, either a long beep or just silence. For Zechariah, the priest, the broadcast day had ended The intertestamental period was nearly 400 years long. God doesn't speak anymore. He didn't show up with angels. And so Zechariah is going through the motions. Of course, he believes, he worships God, but he doesn't expect that the angel, that Gabriel is going to show up and make an announcement. He's ending the silence. Everything is changing because God is speaking again. God is revealing something new to Zechariah. But as a holy man, a learned man, in the temple, 
he hesitates. He doesn't really believe that this could take place. Mary, this young girl, 12-year-old, insignificant, out of the, out of, uh, in the middle of nowhere, Nazareth, she believes. Then what? What happens to Mary next? Well, she gets to tell her fiancé, Joseph, oh, by the way, I'm now pregnant. She gets to go back and tell the two families that have put all this stock in this marriage, that have celebrated this happening, that are looking forward to the ceremony. I'm pregnant. I saw an angel, and I'm pregnant with the Son of God. What do you think they'll do? How will they respond? Do you think they'll believe her? It's so far-fetched. One minute, her future is secure. Her life is in order. The next minute, she's the neighborhood tramp. Who's going to believe a 12-year-old girl has seen God, has seen an angel, and is going to carry God's Son, that God's going to become flesh? God takes unfit people and makes them fit. But He takes normal people and He unfits their normalness. Are you ready to have your normalcy undone, your tidy world untidied? There's a common understanding of Christianity is that you come to Jesus when you're ready to get your life in order. When you're ready for the straight and narrow, you come to Jesus. Christianity is about following the rules and having order, having predictability, keeping up appearances. And if you're visiting with us and you stick around for any time at all, you're going to, to see that many of us buy into this narrative. We're busy trying to keep up appearances, to say with our lives that we've had an experience not unlike Mary's. We've encountered the holy. But instead of hurling us into a world of unexpected and uncontrollable twists and turns, instead of being totally overmatched by our circumstances, instead of clinging to Jesus for dear life, we've had this conversion experience, and it's made us nice and tidy and respectable people with comfortable routines, people who don't want to be late for dinner. Bilbo is drawn out of his comfortable routine, his tidy little hobbit hole, and he's hurled into the unknown, sleeping on the ground, fighting spiders. But he has a story to tell, a captivating, interesting story. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary, and her world is turned upside down, She's invited, or maybe we should even say drafted, into an adventure. And how does she respond? I am the Lord's servant, she answered. May it be as you have said. Why is she able to say this? Why does this 12-year-old girl get it when the priest doesn't? When oftentimes you and I don't get it. Why does she get it? Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. The Lord is with you. Friends, Christianity is not safe and tidy. It's not respectable. What in your life are you holding on to for comfort? What's your security blanket? What's your hobbit hole? What image of the good life captivates you so much that you will hold on to it, even at the cost of living the real adventure that God has for your life? What are you holding on to in order to stay safe and tidy and predictable and normal and boring? 
What would you give up? What would you give away? What would you attempt? What would you change if you really believed that the Lord is with you? A Christian is one who has nothing to lose. Jesus has stepped into their story and has given them everything that truly matters. A Christian is someone that realizes that the most important things that they have can never be taken away. Jesus has become real and present and speaks eternal favor. I, the Lord, Jesus says, am with you forever. You can risk. You can give up. You can give away things that you hold on to for your security because they are not lasting. But Jesus is. His promises are. His presence is real. Maybe you're here asking a different question this morning. Maybe you find yourself in church for the first time in a long time or maybe the first time ever. You've come because it's Christmas or maybe you're at the end of your rope. Maybe life doesn't make sense anymore. And the last thing you want is more disruption. You've come because Christianity is supposed to put things in order. It's supposed to make life seem straight and narrow. But Jesus, friends, will disrupt everything. He'll upend your life even more. But he also brings with him the eternal favor of God, the eternal smile of God, the eternal embrace of God. That's what Jesus brings. He upends our life. He upends our priorities. He upends our agenda and says, they are now mine, but I give you everything that I have. I give you the Lord's embrace forevermore. That's what Christianity is. It's not tidy and respectable. It's dangerous and crazy. But Jesus is present. Would you take hold of that? There's a grandness, a grandeur, a majesty to what God is doing through this little girl, this nobody. There's also a smallness to the things that he uses. I finally got to see the movie Tree of Life a week or so ago. And if you've seen it, it is perplexing, it's challenging, and it's also quite beautiful. What intrigued me, especially as it concerns this passage, is how the film moved between the minute and the cosmic, between the infinitesimal and the grand in scope. A, a baby is born to a very normal Midwestern family in Waco, Texas. And soon after, the camera sweeps back into the creation of the whole universe, into the creation of stars and galaxies. And there's a five-minute, what Roger Ebert called a sort of prayer, a meditation on the creation of the universe. And then the camera comes back down to this family, this middle-of-nowhere town, this family that is on no one's map. And it goes all the way down to the baby and to its feet. Terence Malik is saying that there's a creator who's just as much involved in the creation of the universe, the explosion into, of matter, into reality, into creation out of nothing. And yet he's involved in the most tiny and insignificant seeming things like babies and people that live in small towns in the middle of nowhere. There are no little people and no little places. This appearance of an angel in the Gospels, we think it's rather strange. That sort of thing doesn't happen. Well, it didn't happen all that much even then. 
There's only a handful of examples in all of the Gospels about an angel appearing to bring news, to bring good tidings, to tell them someone something about what God has to say. Two major events in the Gospels involve the appearance of an angel. One is the announcement of Jesus' birth that we're reading, the Annunciation, and also His resurrection. Now, what's similar between these two announcements? The angel appears in both of these cases, the two most momentous occasions in history to women, to those who are the second-class gender in that society. It's not a male priest who's entrusted with the birth, news of the birth, and it's not the male disciples who are entrusted with the news of the resurrection. They're cloistered and confused. It's the women that have to come and tell them what has happened. The Annunciation, God's Son being born, taking on flesh, Israel being redeemed, the greatest news in history. It should announce it to the priest in Jerusalem. But God announces it to a commoner, a woman, a 12-year-old, an unmarried virgin in the middle of nowhere. The priest, Zechariah, in Jerusalem, in the temple, at the very doorstep of God, hesitates when the angel comes. This little girl in the middle of nowhere embraces the fact that Jesus, that God, is with her. Her qualifications were zilch. She's not a priest. She's not in Jerusalem. She's not educated. She's not wise. And she's not a man. What she did have was God's favor. What she did have was His presence. The gospel that God is redeeming his creation through the most humble of means, through tiny, insignificant things and people like you and I. You read the gospel narrative. You see a young girl, a virgin, Nazareth, Bethlehem, a stable, a baby, a refugee, a carpenter, an outcast, and a cross. All of these insignificant things God weaves together to tell the story of the hope of all creation. That Jesus comes not in the place of grandeur, not announcing to the temple, not in the places of commerce, but he comes to a little backwater town in the middle of nowhere and is born in a stable. Francis Schaeffer, who was a theologian last century, says the scripture emphasizes that much can come from little if the little is truly consecrated to God. There are no little people and no big people in the true spiritual sense, but only consecrated and unconsecrated people. God takes normal people and unfits their normalness. But he also takes misfits and includes them by mercy and includes them at the very center of his story. The most significant thing about you, friend, is if you're a Christian, is not your reputation. It's not your abilities or disabilities. It's not your talents, your education, your wealth. It's not how smart you are. It's that you have been consecrated. You have been set apart for God. You have been set apart for His purposes. That's what is more significant. Whatever your story is, whatever your disabilities, whatever your history, your past challenges have been, God Himself says He can not only make you new, He can redeem you personally, but He can insert you into an exciting, adventuresome story. As we think about this passage during the Christmas season, 
we see that there is a great gift that is offered. And then there's also how you open it. There's the gift and there's how you open it. The gift is that no matter who you are, misfit or normal, no matter who you are, God cares about you. He has sent his son into history to redeem you, to grant you eternal salvation. That's the gift, and it's free. It's free for the taking. How do we open it? Well, we say like Mary, I am the Lord's servant. May it be as you have said. God, let me open that gift of salvation. For the very first time or the hundredth time, let me reopen it and understand it and look at it. Just as a child opens a present on Christmas morning and says, wow, what does this do? How significant is this? How can I play with it? Open the gift of salvation again this season and say, wow, look what God has given me. Not because I asked for it, but because he came and entered into our story. It is a great gift. And you open it simply by saying, God, may it be as you have said. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great gift of Jesus. We thank you that you require nothing of us other than to just simply open the gift, to say yes to your offer. Father, I pray that as we go through this Advent season, that you would help us each to reevaluate the cost of the gospel, reevaluate what we are clinging to for meaning, for safety, for comfort. And Father, let these things pale in value in comparison to the great gift that you are willing to give us. I pray that we would find our significance, find our story, find our adventure in what you have done, are doing, and will do. Father, use us, change us, move us closer to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.